You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll go ahead and wait till I hear those pages stop rustling before I jump into this. also want to remind you guys while you're turning there, next Sunday at 8 o'clock, we have our first uh, uh, Sunday school class or life group on Sunday morning, basically, here at the church. So if you signed up for that, don't forget, uh, Glenn Martin and Larry Haynes are running that for us, and uh, I'm excited to see how God's going to use that for the purposes of just making a large church smaller and creating more relationships and causing discipleship to happen, which is what I'm so passionate about here at Calvary Chapel. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, pray with me and we will dive into our text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word together this morning. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minister to us as we open our hearts and minds to you this morning. Father, help us to love you, not just with heart, soul, and strength, but also with our mind. And Father, that we would endeavor to learn from the scriptures more about you, who you are, what makes you tick, and Lord, how we as the church are to reflect your nature. And Father God, I just pray that miraculously, by the Spirit, you would take the words that we're going to read today from scripture and study, and that you would Take them and and that you would melt them into our hearts. Make them a part of us, Lord. And change us that we might accurately reflect the body of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Our study this morning is titled, We Are One. We are one. And much like the nature of Jesus Christ... God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who are three persons in one. The church is a church of diversity that expresses itself in one family, one body, so to speak. And Paul will be talking about that. But this reminded me as I studied about the Fernley High School Vaqueros. The Fernley High School Vaqueros is a high school outside of Reno, Nevada, where yours truly attended and played football for the Vaqueros. Yeah, I know, it's a weird mascot. Trust me, I heard all about it, okay? Many times. But we would come out, uh, our uniforms were black, and we had, you know, black and orange and white were our colors, and so we would come out for these football games in our black uniforms, the home games, and of course they'd be playing ACDC back in black and stuff like that, which, you know, I'm not too proud of. But anyways, we'd come out on the field, and all the team captains would be carrying a long rope, And they would take that long rope and they would walk it up to the sidelines where the team would stand and we would stretch it out on the sidelines. Every football team has their own ritual, you know, to, you know, the the, the Titans. And remember the Titans, they had that cool dance. Well, we just had a rope, okay? We just kind of brought this rope out and laid it down. We're like, there it is, you know. That's our team unity. That's our symbol of team right there, the rope. And the coach always taught us, don't let go of the rope, meaning don't let go of your responsibility to be a part of the team. Don't let go of your responsibility to, uh, uh, you know, support and be there and fulfill the role and the function for which you were to be a part of that team. Now, that concept of unity only extended to the playing field, really, 
for our high school football team. I mean, there was guys on that team that were doing a lot of things off the field that I didn't want to have unity with them on. I didn't want to be a partaker, a participator in what they were doing off the field. But as far as on the field, that was our symbol of unity. Well, it's different with the body of Christ, in a sense, because the unity that we're to experience is not just on the playing field, it's, it's all of life. It's all of life that we are to be supporting one another and sharing responsibility together as the whole body of Jesus Christ. We are all connected spiritually to the same person, Jesus. And that's the main point of the whole chapter here in chapter 12. Paul is making a main point that there's to be diversity with unity, not uniformity in the body of Christ. That's the point of chapter 12, but our theme for the message today is that we are one body by one spirit, and that one spirit is what we share together, and he is building all of us up together. If you're following along in your outlines today, there's going to be several blanks for you to fill in, but as we go there, point number one is how we become the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is now talking about. Verses 1 through 11, he talked about not being ignorant concerning these spiritual things. Then he talked about the diversity of ministries, gifts, and activities that we're to find in the church. And just as our God is diverse, the church is going to be diverse within the context of unity. And now in chapter 12, he's going to give this metaphor of the human body. And look at, with verse, at verse 12 with me in your Bibles. Follow along. It says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. In other words, Christ's body is the church. The church is important, men and women. The church is a place that we need to make a priority to belong to. Whether we're coming on Sundays, or whether we're coming on Wednesdays, or whether we're attending life groups, or whatever it may be, we need to make the church a priority. It is Christ's body. It is also known as Christ's bride in the scriptures. It is also known as, referred to as God's family. And so all of these things are very important pictures of the body of Christ. The church. Now, as we look around this room here today, we see, hey, the church is made up of many different parts. There are men, there are women, there are young boys and young girls that are part of the kingdom, part of the body of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> there are different personalities, there's different backgrounds, there's different, different ethnicities and different spiritual gifts. Yet Christ's body, just like a human body, is to work together, Paul says, to accomplish what the mind sets forth as its purpose and aim. First, uh, Philippians chapter one or chapter two, verse five says that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the mind of the church. Jesus Christ is the mindset that we are to uh, attain to. And so if he is the head, or the mind, if you will, then we're all connected to him, and he's directing the parts. He's directing us to carry out the will of Jesus Christ, both towards each other and towards the world around us. Paul goes on now to make the point of how the Spirit makes us one. 
That's subpoint B, how the Spirit makes us one. Verse 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Here's a verse which has either been misunderstood in Christian history, or it has made people feel very uncomfortable. Terms like baptize and drink, those all kind of make people tend to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Let's unpack this. There are some who argue for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is something that I believe in, and and it is the Calvary Chapel official position. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the experience that the Apostle Paul is referring to here in this verse. Okay, let me be clear. He is not referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me see if I can explain to you the difference. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which empowers a believer for service and for witnessing, is done specifically by Jesus Christ. He is the baptizing agent. Check out Mark chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. It'll be on your screen. Mark chapter 1, verse 6 through 8 says this. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There is one who comes after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he, referring to Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So you can notice right there that Jesus is the direct agent who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. However, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, verse 13, Paul is speaking of the Holy Spirit being the agent who baptizes believers into the family of God. This refers to a common experience of every single child of God who believes in the gospel. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, you believe that. And in that moment of belief, when your faith is, becomes real and it is placed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, in that moment, the Holy Spirit immerses or indwells or baptizes you into the family of God. Baptism. In, this, in the biblical culture, in the biblical times, and, and still to this day, was a uh, form of identification. In fact, in the Jewish world, in order to convert to Judaism, in order to become a Jew, you had to go through this ritual or this process of baptism. Because in so doing, you were identifying with your new faith community. And so Paul is referring to this idea of baptism as a form of identification here. He's saying, listen, when you believe the gospel, the the, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the family of Christ. He fills you with his presence, his indwelling presence, and you become part of God's forever family. The Bible talks about this. It talks about it here. But it also talks about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as a seal of God's promise of salvation. A seal, kind of like a wedding ring. This wedding ring that I wear on my finger is a seal. It's a guarantee of the promises and the vows that I have made with my wife. 
The presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, is a seal. It's a guarantee that God has made a covenant with you. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that covenant. So what am I referring to? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. It'll be on your screen as well. But this talks about how the Holy Spirit seals you as a part of God's family. It says, in him you also trusted, talking about Christ, when you trusted Christ. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So notice there in those verses, it says specifically, the Holy Spirit seals you. And his presence in your life, is the guarantee that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are going to cash in one day on the promise of eternal life. One of my favorite bands, please don't judge me, but it's Payable on Death, or P-O-D. I'm a rock and roll guy. I love those guys. But their very name, Payable on Death, it speaks of the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation to you and I is not payable until we die. It's as we die that we cash in on that promise and our soul goes to be with Jesus Christ in heaven awaiting the resurrection of the dead when we'll be united with uh, the, the earthly remains of our body and transformed in an instant, the Bible says. First Corinthians chapter 15, we'll get there in a few weeks. Actually, at the rate we're going, we might get there next year sometime. But he talks about all of this, okay? But right now, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. It's a seal, his indwelling presence. So that's how you become a member of the family of God. You believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the family of God. You become a believer. You become part of God's family through the seal and and, and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The Holy Spirit baptizes you into the family of God, into the body of Christ. It's an identification thing. It's separate from the work that Jesus Christ does. His baptism of the Holy Spirit is to empower you, to come upon you, to overflow. Think of it in this way. You have a cup. That cup can be filled with water. At that point, the water contained in that cup, hey, it's, it's there. It's definitely a part of that cup. It's not going anywhere. But if you continue to pour water into that cup, it begins to overflow, doesn't it? And then it begins to get on things around it. It begins to affect the outside environment. That's an idea of the difference here. The Holy Spirit baptizes you into the family of God. He indwells you. He fills you. You're His. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when Jesus Christ baptizes you for, uh, for service, you begin to affect the outside world. You begin to affect others. The overflow of the Holy Spirit's love in your life begins to reach out and touch and affect other people's lives. I hope you can understand the difference. I want to be clear this morning. On the one hand, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, right here, the Holy Spirit baptizes a believer into the family of God. Think indwell. Think seal. However, in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, and Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and verse 8, You have Jesus Christ baptizing believers with the Holy Spirit. Think come upon, think overflow, think being witnesses. At any rate, what is clear here in verse 13 of chapter 12 is that Paul is telling us that it is the same Holy Spirit who has baptized 
us all into Christ, and we all drink or partake of the same Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us. And his purpose, his desire is to build us up. And we come now to the second point of our message this morning. Why we need the body of Christ. Why do we even need the body of Christ? What what is so important about it? Paul goes on to explain his use of the metaphor of the body. And he's going to give us two applications for the church today, starting with subpoint A, that each part is distinct to serve one another. Each part is distinct to serve one another. Look at verse 14 with me and follow along. He says, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would would the hearing be? Or where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members yet one body. So Paul is kind of highlighting the distinction of the different parts in the body of Christ. There are many distinct members, he says, that make up a one body of Jesus. The idea is backing up Paul's main point of this chapter, which again is that there's a need for diversity. There's a need for different gifts, different ministries, different activities in the church. Paul is actually employing kind of a sense of humor here in these verses with this metaphor. He's personifying a foot and an ear, which is pretty funny if you've ever thought about a foot or an ear that could talk. Just use your imagination here this morning, because that's what makes this whole section funny. Paul's saying, what if the whole body were an eye? That would be monstrous, wouldn't it? As we see Mike Wazowski there on the screen. I mean, if that was the body of Christ... It would be weird, okay? Or maybe it would look something like this guy, our second monster. (laughs) That would get even weirder. If everybody wanted to be an eye, we would be monstrous. It wouldn't work right. It wouldn't look right. Paul is, is using his sense of imagination here to describe the situation. Then there's the pouting foot there in verse 15. I love the pouting foot. The pouty foot says, I don't like being a foot. My job stinks. I'm always stuffed and cramped into small areas. And man, it hurts when I get stepped on. I demand to be a hand or else I'm leaving this body. Funny enough, but Christians talk like that sometimes. Imagine though if your foot left its post at the end of your leg. In rebellion, it crawled up to the end of your arm and it tried to be a hand. You would look like a monster. You might be good for a street fight. You could punch and kick all with one hand, you know. You know, it'd be some pretty good Bruce Lee stuff. But you'd look like a monster, not to mention the fact that you wouldn't really be able to walk or keep your balance. Then again, there's the rebellious ear there in verse 16. Did you notice him? I can just hear him. All I do is hear things. Why can't I ever see anything? I'm out of here, says the rebellious ear. But Paul says, look. Unless we want to be a monster, somebody has to be the ear. 
Someone has to be the nose. We can't have it all our way. Besides, he says, God has placed each one of you guys, each one of us, in the exact place that he wanted. He placed you so perfectly within the body of Christ. He knows it. The problem so often is, is that we don't know it. We don't realize it. We want to be somebody else. We compare, we look with jealousy upon another Christian and their gifts, and we think, oh, that should be me. <laughs> but, but, but Paul is saying, he's making it clear, hey, listen, it doesn't, that, that, you're just going to tear the body apart. You're just going to turn it into a monster if you fail to realize that God loves you and has placed you so perfectly according to the gifts that he has given you and designed you to function in that way. You see, we need eyes, we need ears and noses, we need hands and feet, we need every part. Each part is distinct in order that we may function together as a whole. And subpoint B, Paul says, each part is also necessary to complete one another. Each part is necessary in order to complete one another. Verse 21, follow along with me. He says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. In verse 23, And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Let's pause here. Notice there in verse 22 with me that the weaker parts, Paul says, are necessary. He's talking about organs. He's talking about the inner organs, which are inside of our body. They're necessary so that we can function. <laughs> Think about it. Without the organs, we would die. But they are weaker. If someone walks up and gives you a jab to the solar plexus, man, you double over. You feel it. Because that organ is, is weak. It's, it's, a, it's a soft spot. We might not think of our organs, say our kidneys and liver, to be very honorable parts, but we sure do honor them by protecting them and making sure that they're taken care of. Our heart is another example. Nobody walks up to us and says, oh, wow, your heart is so strong. Your heart is so, so strong. Just pumping all that blood to all those members of your body. Wow. Yet we bestow honor upon our hearts, don't we? We take care of it by the way that we eat, by the way that we exercise, by the way that we are, are careful not to do anything that's going to cause the heart to speed up beyond a manageable rate and things of that nature. We take care of it. The way that God made the body is very important, Paul is saying. There in verses 23 and 24, Paul is also referring to sexual organs. He says, those are unpresentable parts. We, so we dress them up with greater modesty, Paul says, than, say, our more honorable parts, like our faces. We don't cover the face, do we? We want everybody to see us. But we cover the other parts of our body, don't we? 
We do that because, hey, we want to have greater modesty with those parts. That's the way that God has made the body, though, that even the parts that we cover up, they are valuable to us, and they serve a very important purpose. Paul says the church is no different. It has different parts, but they are meant to be divided, or they're not meant to be divided against each other. The, the body has many parts. Some are, are more visible than others, yet every single one of them is vitally important to complete the function of the body. That's what he means there in verse 25 and 26. He's saying the body's connected. Every part is necessary. Every part is to be cared for. Think about it. If you're a baseball player and you hit a home run, your arms don't say to your legs, hey, you hear all that cheering, man? That's for me because I did that. Okay, your arms don't talk that way. They don't think that way when you're running the bases on a home run. And besides, you know that to hit a home run, your whole body has to go into that swing. Your whole body has to work together to pivot and throw the weight and throw those arms all at the same moment to get that ball out of the park. In the same analogy, if a baseball player gets hit with a pitch in the shin, man, immediately he doubles over and his attention is all focused in on that area where the baseball struck the bone. It's painful, man. And the whole body is concerned about that shin while it's going through that pain. In the same way, Paul is saying, listen, if one part of the body is hurt, the whole body needs to feel it. If one part of the body is being honored, listen, the whole body gets credit. It's not a you and me, him and her, this and these and them. It's about the whole body together. There should be no division, Paul is saying. And why does he say this? Well, because we know that that's exactly what was happening in the church at Corinth. There was the rich, there was the poor, there was the hyper-spiritual, there were those that were not spiritual. There were those that had spiritual freedom and were going to the pagan temples and the pagan feasts, and there were those that were not. And so there was a lot of division. Then there was the, the, the divisions over leaders. Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Jesus, said the really hyper-spiritual crowd. And there was all this division taking place. And Paul says, no, guys, you don't get it. It's not what the body is about. Jesus Christ, every member of his body, is equally important and vitally part of the whole. We need you guys. We need every single one of you. What's the body of Christ? Or what the body of Christ needs of us is our third point this morning. What, what, is, what does the body of Christ need of us if we're to function properly? This verse is 27 through 31. Paul's going to bring to a conclusion this argument that he's been making. He started this argument all the way back in verse 4 of this chapter. And he's, he's arguing for the need for diversity within the context of unity in the church. And he tells us that the body needs, first of all, parts who participate. Parts who participate, verse 27, pick it up with me, he says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. You see, Paul is tying it all together there in verse 27. The metaphor about the body is all about the Corinthian church. And by implication, it applies to us, guys. This isn't just to the Corinthians, you know, X amount of years ago. This is to you and me today. So we can, we can see ourselves in this text. In verse 28, Paul tells us, this is God ultimately is responsible for diversity within the church. And that's why we're not to look down on it. It says that God has pointed these in the church. 
First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. So here's another list. It's another list, but just like the one before it, it's not meant to be exhaustive. And, and, and Paul really only enumerates as a priority the very first three gifts. And, and they're not necessarily even gifts, they're just persons within the church or offices within the church. So this, and this is a list that's meant to illustrate the diversity of the gifts that are found in the body of Christ. He begins there with a list of persons, apostles, prophets, teachers. These, pe- these persons' gifts are ranked first, second, and third. And this is probably because Paul saw these person gifts as very highly important and necessary for the church. And I, I, I agree with him. <laughs> He follows these gifted persons with two gifts of the Spirit, miracles and healings. Now these are in different order than what they were listed in in verses verses 8 through 11. And that leads us to believe that he doesn't care about the order here. Then he gives two more gifts there, helps and administrations. Now these are service-oriented gifts. Meaning that they're related to activities within the church. So you see Paul's point. He's, he's, he's listing all kinds of different diversities of ministries, activities, and gifts. And his point, once again, is there's to be a diversity of all these things within the context of unity. And then last, but not least, Paul lists the gift of tongues there. Now this is not listed last because the gift of tongues is meant to be seen as least. That's not the idea here. Some people think that. But that's not what Paul was doing. Again, he's, he's including it here because it's the, probably the, the, the main problem that was being abused in the Corinthian church. All the focus was on the gift of tongues. So Paul's making sure to throw it in there, and he's letting him know, look, there's a whole bunch of different gifts that need to be active and ministries that need to be active within the church. It's not just the gift of tongues, but he also includes it. Now, Paul launches into another set of rhetorical questions in order to drive home the main point. Verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Of course not, the answer is. Only some are going to be apostles. What are apostles? Well, an apostle is referring to someone who is sent by God to influence and shape the church in their generation. These men, like the original apostles, are few, yet they are mighty. These are men like, I believe, Billy Graham, who recently passed away and went to be with the Lord. I believe that that man was sent by God to shape and influence the church in his generation. Men like John MacArthur, or Chuck Smith, or Greg Laurie, and there are others that can be added to that list. Men that God has spent, sent specifically to, for the church in our generation, guys, to shape and influence it and to help guide her through troubled waters. Of course, we don't refer to them as apostles because we don't want to, them, we don't want to confuse them with the men who were the original apostles of Jesus Christ. But they are fulfilling the work of an apostle in the strict sense of that definition. They are men who are sent by God. 
Okay? Now, we don't call them apostles, and they would never want to be referred to as apostles. In fact, that's always usually a good litmus test for, for guys. If, if somebody's going around saying, hey, my title is apostle, red flag, okay? Just, you don't want to be, you probably want to double check the ministry before you join. If somebody insists on being called apostle, and there are guys like this, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, there, there's a, a, a certain preacher, uh, he goes by the name of Apostle, his name is Cash Luna, he has a humongous ministry in Mexico, and, and to be a part of his inner circle, you can pay $20,000 or some, some exorbitant amount of money, and you can join the inner circle of the Apostle Luna's ministry, okay? There are guys like this out there. But guys like that, guys, that's, to me, that's very dangerous water to be treading. If you have to claim that and you have to demand that you insist that people call you that, there's a problem. And if you're charging money for those sorts of things, there's an, there's an issue with that, okay? That's not scriptural. We don't see that in the Bible. But we do see the gift or the person gift of apostle, men that are sent by God for the generation of the church. He goes on and talks about prophets. Prophets. Not everybody's going to be a prophet. Not everybody's going to be an apostle. But a prophet is someone who speaks forth God's word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Can be future. It can be something of the future. We've talked about this before. But that's only 25% of the time. In the scriptures, in the Bible, prophecy is only 25%. All the rest of the time, it's just prophets are just declaring God's word for the moment. It's, it's, it's just God's truth being spoken, preached, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of prophecy. Not everybody's going to be a prophet. And then Paul goes on, and he lists teachers. Others are teachers of God's Word. They help people understand the Bible. They help people understand God and how to apply His truths to life. Then we have the supernatural gifts. Then you have, you know, miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues. There's a beautiful diversity of all the different ministries, gifts, and activities, all orchestrated by the same Lord and imparted by the same Holy Spirit. Paul's plain meaning, by again mentioning gifts of tongues, along with the gift of interpretation, is that not every believer will have the gift of tongues. Okay, not every believer is going to uh, be using the gift of tongues, just like not everyone's going to be an apostle or a prophet or a teacher. Now listen, guys, there's been untold damage done to the church today by teaching that every believer must speak in tongues or that the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues. Okay, that's a, that's a, 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 very, that's a, a teaching that has done so much damage to the church Paul right here makes it clear that not everybody's going to have that gift. But because of the pressure some churches put upon it, it causes people to fake the gift of tongues and has in turn caused much confusion around this gift. But Paul clears it up for us. Not all will be given the gift of tongues because there's a diversity of ministries, gifts, and activities. Paul ends the chapter now with an interesting statement and an introduction to his next thought which sets up chapter 13. He says that the body of Christ needs parts who deeply desire the most helpful gifts. Verse 31. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So the statement here is that we're to earnestly or deeply desire the best gifts, church. The best gift, what is that? What does Paul mean by the best gift? Is he talking about love in chapter 13? No, because love is not a gift. Love is a way 
That's what Paul says. He says, I'll show you a more excellent way. Love is a way. So love is not just a gift. It's a way. So what's he talking about? What is the most excellent gift? Or what's the, I'm sorry, what's the, the, the best gifts? Well, when your body has a wound, you actively seek to do what is necessary to address it. When you're sick, you seek healing. When you're in need of directions, you look at a map or you open up the, the, the Google Maps on your phone and punch in the address. As a Christian... We belong to the body which belongs to Jesus. As individual members, each one of us here are being encouraged to sincerely desire the most helpful gift. That's what the best gift is. Whatever's going to be the most help in the moment. Whatever's going to be most helpful to the body to edify and to build up. That might be a direct word of prophecy from the Lord on a specific issue within your life or within the church as a whole. It might be a healing from physical sickness or disease. It might be an individual prayer language, the gift of tongues, so that you as an individual can talk or communicate to God in a deeper way. Speaking of the gift of tongues, Pastor David Gusick writes this about that gift, and I I quote, he says, When one feels hindered in their ability to talk to God... Using their given language, they can and should ask God for the empowering to communicate with God in a language which He understands, but which surpasses their understanding. That's the gift of tongues. It's a language that God understands, but it surpasses your understanding. He goes on to say, if someone feels satisfied with their ability to communicate with God, there's really no need for the gift of tongues. And it should not be desired until one does want a communication with God which goes beyond understanding. I like that. Hey, if you're satisfied with your communication with God, you don't need to seek the gift of tongues. It might not be the most helpful gift for you. But if there are times or if you're in a place where you're crying out to God with all that you've got and you don't feel that it's adequate and you feel that you need help, hey, you might want to consider seeking God and desiring the gift of tongues and asking Him for that because it's a prayer language that God gives. And it's something that He understands, but it goes beyond your understanding. We always get so many questions about the gift of tongues. I can assure you we're going to go into that in the coming weeks, especially when we hit chapter 14. We'll explain it. We'll lay it out. But in the meantime, know this. It's not a bad thing, and it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing out there. It doesn't need to be the focus. Instead, as we'll see next week, we're going to look at the more excellent way, which, of course, is love. It isn't the gifts that we're to focus on, but it is rather the gift giver and the head of the church who fills us with his love so that we can share it with others. That's where the focus is to be. We focus on the gift giver, which is God. His generosity, His grace, His beauty, His love. And as He fills us, hey, we in turn seek to share His love. And the way that we do that sometimes might be expressed through a spiritual gift, but that doesn't need to be the focus, Paul says. All the gifts in the world mean nothing if they are empty and without love. You see, folks, God loves you. And that is what life is all about. Amen? Let's pray.